Greetings, Detective. Welcome to the Murder Mystery Company in our new free service, Calm Mystery. We know that many of you need that calm and centered moment, but meditation isn't necessarily your thing. If you're a mystery lover, a crime fan, and could use a break, you've come to the right place. It sure is a suspenseful world out there, but I have good news for you. In this world, the only suspense will come from the world's best writers. For the next few minutes, we're going to close the door on the outside world. First, find a comfortable chair, sofa, or bed. Take a moment to just relax into that spot. Let your body sink in, slowly releasing the day's tension. Just relax. You've earned this time. You need this time for you. Your body will thank you. Now let's take a moment to clear your mind. I want you to focus on two things. My voice and your breathing. Take a deep breath in through your nose. Let it out slowly through your mouth. Now the same thing, but let's breathe on my count. Three counts in and four counts out. Breathe in. One, two, three. Now out. One, two, three, four. As we do this, you're going to slowly relax more and be perfectly ready for tonight's dastardly tale. Now again, breathe in. One, two, three. Now out. One, two, three, four. One more time, breathing out the last bit of stress. Breathe in, one, two, three. Now out, one, two, three, four. Excellent. Tonight's tale of mystery, intrigue, and murder is truly spine-tingling. Welcome to Calm Mystery. Our selection this time, The Earth Quarter by Damon Knight, read by Perry F. Bruns, Part 8, The Conclusion. Kudik sat with his teacup raised halfway between the table and his lips. After a long moment, he saw that his hand was trembling violently. He set the cup down. He said, Where? The little bear. Half the town has gone there already. Do you want to go? Kudik stood up slowly. Yes, he said. I suppose so. But he felt the tension that pulled his body together, the tautened muscles in back and shoulders and arms. As they reached the corner of Sesko-Slovensko and Washington, they saw scattered groups of men moving ahead of them, all hurrying, some frankly running. The crowd was thick around the doorway of the little bear when they reached it, 
and they had difficulty forcing a passage. Man moved aside for Seu willingly enough, but there was little space to move. Inside it was worse. The stairway was solidly packed. It was obviously impossible to get through. There is a back stair, Seu said. He worked his way toward the rear of the room, Kudik following, until he caught sight of the bartender. The press was not so thick here, and he was able to reach the man and lead him into a corner away from the others. Can you get us up the back way? The Russian nodded, scowled, and put his finger to his lips. Following him, they went through the swinging doors at the back of the room, through the dark kitchen and up the narrow service stairs at the rear. The bartender unlocked the door and helped them force it open against the pressure of the packed bodies inside. The long room was heavy with the odors of sweat, tobacco smoke, and stale air. Faces shone greasily under the glare of the ceiling lights. The only clear space was the tabletop against the wall to Kudik's right, where Rack stood. Kudik could see him clearly over the heads of those in front of him. He stood with legs planted firmly, hands at his sides. As always, the leather jacket was draped over his shoulders like a cloak. He was alone. Spider was not there, nor Monk, nor Tom DeGrasse. Rack was talking in a low, clear voice. Kudik listened to the end of a sentence which conveyed nothing to him, and then heard, After that, we got it. They gave it to us. Rack's hands clenched once and then opened again. They intercepted us three minutes after we came out of overdrive in the orbit of New Earth. Twelve fighting ships, the whole fleet. We were in a line, just closing in after we broke sea on the way down. The Thermopylae, the Tours, the Waterloo, the Chateau Thierry, the Dunkirk, the Leningrad, the Acre, the Valley Forge, the Hiroshima, the San Francisco, the Seoul, and the flagship last, the Armageddon. We didn't know they were there. They were out of our detector range. They had us like sitting ducks. The first thing we knew about it was when a teletype report from the leading ship, the Thermopylae, broke off in the middle of a word. Five seconds later, the same thing happened to a report coming in from the next ship. Three seconds more and the Waterloo was gone. I gave the order to reverse acceleration and scatter. But the field, whatever it was, came after us. It would have taken us at least two minutes to build up the overdrive potential again, and we all knew we wouldn't make it. They were getting us one ship every six or eight seconds. The men were looking to me for orders. I didn't have any to give them. Suddenly DeGrasse turned around and looked at Monk and Spider, and they all nodded. They jumped me. I don't know what happened. I struck my head against the deck when I went down, or one of them hit me with a gun butt. His fists clenched and opened once more. When I came to, I was strapped into a one-man lifeboat on overdrive doing ten seas. They must have emptied the ship's accumulators into that lifeboat, charged it up to sea potential, and got me off just before the field hit them. I took my bearings, reversed, and went back. Eventually I found the fleet again. 
The Galactics had matched course and velocity with them and were just beginning to tow them off. One ship to one with plenty of theirs left over. In the general direction of Altair. They hadn't got into overdrive yet. I slipped in. There were a hundred of their little scouts nosing around about the same mass as my lifeboat and berthed in the same port I'd come out of. I got out and walked into the control room. The crew was still there, still alive, but not men. They were lying on the deck, looking at nothing. Their mouths were open, and they were drooling. Rack's head moved stiffly, and his sharp profile turned from one side of the crowd to the other. Mindless idiots, he said. They couldn't feed themselves or stand up or sit, but they had saved me. I built up the charge and took my time about it. When the Galactics went into overdrive, I took off in another direction. I was a good seventy light-years away before they knew I was gone. I had a ship, an undamaged ship, but I had no crew to man her. I can astrogate, and when I have to, I can man the engines on top of that. But I can't fight her as well. I came here, put the Armageddon into a one-day orbit, and came down in a lifeboat. I want to go back and find out what those slime eaters did to us, and give them a taste of the same. I want twenty men. There was a silence. Rack said in the same even, low voice, Will you fight for the human race? Someone called. What did you do with your other crew? Rack said, I gave them military burial in space. For the first time, the crowd as a whole broke its silence. A low murmur arose. Rack said sharply, I would have given my life for those men, as they did for me, gladly. But they were already dead. If there is a way to restore a man's mind after that has been done to it, only the vermin know how. I would rather be buried in space, and so would they. A deep voice called, Are you God, Rack? I'm not God, he said promptly. Are you a man? There was another murmur dying as a pulsing movement began near the back of the room. Someone was forcing his way toward Rack. In the stillness, another voice said thinly, My Dimitrios, my Alexander. It was Mulios wailing for his two lost sons. Red-faced, with a lock of black hair hanging over his forehead, the painter Vexion squeezed through to the edge of the table on which Rack stood. He shouted, I'm a man, all right. What do you call yourself, you assassin? You come here with blood dripping from your jaws like a weasel fresh from a poultry yard. And we're supposed to feel sorry for you because they wouldn't let you go on killing. The great god Rack. Tui. Rack did not move. He said quietly, I killed your enemies while you sat at home and drank tea. Enemies, Vexion roared. You're the enemy, Rack. He put his big hands on the tabletop and heaved himself up. Rack let him come. 
He waited until the Russian was standing on the table. Then he stepped forward with a motion so smooth it seemed casual. There was a flurry of blows, none of which landed except two. One in Vekshin's midriff, the other on the point of his jaw. Five men went down as Vekshin's body hurtled into them. Rack stepped back. I have very little patience left, he said. But if there is anyone else here with a personal grudge, let him step up. Two men at the table's edge moved as if to climb up. Rack put his hand to the gun at his belt. The two men stayed where they were. Rack stared out over the crowd. He looked suddenly very weary. It occurred to Kudik that he must have gone without sleep for a long time. Rack said, This is the last call. I am not trying to deceive you. I promise you nothing, not glory, not your lives, not even that you will be able to spend your lives usefully. But if there is any man here who will serve aboard the Armageddon, in the last fight for mankind, raise your hand. There was a long moment's silence. Rack turned abruptly with his hand still on his gun and said to the men in front of Kudik, Stand back! The silence held for an instant while the men at the table's end moved uncertainly away. Then sound broke like an avalanche. As Rack jumped down, the crowd surged toward him, no longer an audience but a mob. Kudik felt the pressure at his back, caught a glimpse of Rack's face, then heard the deafening report of the gun as he went hurtling forward into the melee. The gun did not fire again. Kudik was squeezed tightly in the center of the struggling mass. He saw Seul, a few feet away. The mayor's mouth was open. He was shouting something, but the words were lost. Suddenly Rack came into view again, charging straight toward Kudik, hurling bodies to either side. The lower half of his face was a smear of blood. His cap and jacket were gone, his shirt torn half away. Kudik was half aware of the constriction in his throat, the pounding of blood at his temples. He wrenched one arm free and as Rack came near, struck him full in the face. He had one more glimpse of Rack's white features, the pale eyes staring at him with a curiously detached expression. The eyes of a Caesar or a Christ, reproachful and sad. Then the crowd surged once more. The door to the back stairway slammed open, and Rack was gone. Kudik found himself running through the doorway with half a dozen others. He caught sight of Rack leaping down the stairs just short of the landing where the narrow stairway doubled back on itself. With a regretful sigh, feeling no surprise at what he was about to do, Kudik put both hands on the railing and swung himself over into vacancy. Then there was an instant of wild, soaring flight, Rack's foreshortened body drifting beneath him, and the shock. Dazed and numb, Kudik felt the universe moving under him like a gigantic pendulum. He saw faces appear and vanish, felt someone push him aside, heard voices faintly. After a long time, his head cleared and there was silence. 
He was lying at the foot of the stairs, one arm flung over the first step. Rack was not there. No one was there but himself. He moved cautiously and was rewarded by an astonishing number and variety of pains. But apparently he had broken no bones. He felt weak and hollow. He was afraid he might vomit. He hoisted his torso up slowly, sat on the lowest step, and then put his head between his trembling knees. He heard a foot scuff on the concrete floor and looked up. It was Seu. The Chinese looked at him anxiously. You're all right? Yes, I think so. I have felt better in my life. Do you want to get up? Did you jump or fall? Kudik leaned forward, trying the strength of his thighs to raise him, and Selu put a hand under his arm to help. I jumped, Kudik said. What happened afterward? The mob came down, me in the middle, and I couldn't stop to see if you were all right. They took Rack with them. He was unconscious then. He may have been dead. And? They tore him apart, said Seu. They moved toward the exit from the kitchen, Seu holding Kudik's arm firmly. I don't know if you felt this, the mayor said stiffly. But the way it seemed to me was that Rack suddenly represented all of it. Not only the bombings, but the quarter, the galaxy, Earth, everything we hated. It was a feeling of release, a kind of ecstasy. Watch out for the sill, scapegoat, Kudik said indistinctly. Yes. Zid Oran saw it, you know. He was there when the mob came out. He saw it all. This finishes the quarter, Laszlo. After this, there won't be any more reprieves. Kudik glanced down at Seu's plump fingers. There was a thin film of blood on the skin and a dark line of it around each fingernail. Kudik stood at the top of the gentle rise opposite the Washington Avenue Bridge and looked down at the quarter. It was just after sunset, and the rank streetlights cast a lonesome gleam. The streets were empty. There was no one left in the quarter except one man in the powerhouse. When the time was up, he would pull the switches on the master board and come out. Then the quarter would be dead. The Nyori Edict had come on the Wednesday morning after Rack's death. They had been given four days to pack their belongings, arrange for assignment of cargo space, and wind up their several affairs. Kudik's stock was small and his personal belongings few. He had been ready two days ago. The evening breeze, freshening, pressed Kudik's trousers against his calves and stirred the hair at the back of his head. Looking into the east, he saw a few pallid stars in the sky. Several hundred people had already been collected by the air cars which served the spaceport. Kudik, Seu, Exarchos, and a few others, by unspoken assent, had taken places at the rear of the crowd to be the last to go. He glanced at Seu. The little man was staring with his hands in his pockets, shoulders slumped, 
staring dully at the quarter. He looked up after a moment, smiled unhappily, and shrugged. It's absurd to feel homesick for it, isn't it? He said. It was a ghetto. We had no roots there. It was cramped, and it stank, and we fought among ourselves more viciously than we ever fought on Earth. For twenty years. We could pretend that we had roots, at least, Kudik answered. We don't belong anywhere. Perhaps we'll be happier in the long run, once we face that and accept it. I doubt it. So do I. To Kudik's right, Father Exarchos was sitting on his suitcase, hands relaxed on his thighs. Kudik said, If I were a believer, Asterios, I think it would do me a great deal of good to confess to you and be absolved. The priest's dry, friendly voice said, Why? Have you sinned so terribly, Laszlo? I killed a man, said Kudik, but that's not what I mean. I jumped over a stairway railing and stopped Rack. If it hadn't been for me, he might have got away. There would have been nothing wrong with that. He couldn't have done any more harm, one man by himself. The guards would have captured him sooner or later, anyhow. And if he had gotten away, we wouldn't have given the Nuri the one more straw they needed. In that sense, it is my fault that we were expelled. No, Laszlo, said Siu. Exarchos said, You'll have nothing for which to reproach yourself on that score. You were only the instrument of history, my friend, and a minor instrument at that. And speaking for myself, not for the church, Rack deserved to die. Kudik thought at least it was quite suitably ironic. Kudik, the man of action, hurls himself through the air to kill a murderer. And the citizens of the quarter are deported, not because one of their race murdered a billion billion galactics, but because that same killer was killed by them. That was one thin mark on the credit side. There was one more. The tension was gone, for some of them at least. Now the worst thing that could happen had happened. The Damocletian threat had snapped. The problems which had caused the tension no longer existed. Earth was two months away. Kudik expected nothing and hoped for nothing. But the Niori had agreed to set each passenger down wherever on the globe he chose to go. Each man, at least, could choose his own hell. The crews of the captured battleships and the captured staff of the base on New Earth were also being sent back. The weapon that had been used on them had done no permanent damage. They would simply have to be retrained to learn all over again, as if they were reborn. Seu was going to North America, where he hoped survival for a fat cosmopolite would be a little less difficult than in Europe or Asia. Moskowitz had been born in New York and was going back there. Exarchos was going to Istanbul first, for orders. He had no idea where he might be sent after that. Kudik had not yet made up his mind. He thought perhaps he would go with the priest. If he should change his mind after landing, it would be no great loss. One wilderness, as Exarchos had once said, was as good as another. It will all be anticlimax, he thought, and perhaps that is the definition of hell.
unending anticlimax. He wondered how it would feel to be earthbound again. The repatriation ship was to be the last galactic vessel which would ever call at Earth. And there would be a constant guard. The Nyori had learned, belatedly, but well. If humanity ever climbed high enough again to reach the stars with its bloody fingers, the citizens of the galaxy would be ready. Kudik looked at his watch. The man in the powerhouse must be a sentimentalist. He was waiting until the last possible moment. He heard the soft hum of the air car behind him, turned and saw it settling lightly to the clipped lawn. The remaining passengers were moving toward it. Exarchos stood up and lifted his suitcase. Kudik turned back for one last look at the quarter. It was full dark now, and all he could see of it was the blocky, ambiguous outline of its darkness against the glowing buildings beyond and the cross-hatched pattern of yellow streetlights. The lights went out. You've just listened to the conclusion of The Earth Quarter by Damon Knight here on Calm Mystery. Join us next time when we'll have another thrilling tale for you. Calm Mystery is a Murder Mystery Company production, part of American Immersion Theater, Scott Crampton, executive producer. Our editor is Audra Schildhaus. If you enjoy Calm Mystery, please take the time to rate us and leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your fine podcasts. It helps spread the word, and the comments let us know what you like and how we can improve. While you're at it, tell a friend who enjoys a good story, or even an enemy if you need a distraction. And subscribe if you haven't already. That way you won't miss an episode. They'll download to your device when you least expect it. In the meantime, stay calm. Mystery is everywhere. Thank you for listening to Calm Mystery, a Murder Mystery Company production. To solve your own case with us, visit MurderMysteryZoomParty.com, all one word, and use code CALM, C-A-L-M, for $20 off your own Murder Mystery Party. We have dozens of entertaining detectives. You can even ask for me, Perry, by name. If no one else can help, and if they can find me, maybe I can help you become Detective of the Night. That's MurderMysteryZoomParty.com, all one word, code CALM.